Good morning. Just a couple of announcements, actually, before we begin. Uh, One, if you're visiting with us this morning, it's especially good to see you. And one simple and easy way for us to get to know you is at the bottom of your bulletin is a little visitor information slip. You can fill that out and uh, give that to one of the ushers or pastors after the service. Uh, And secondly... If you have been coming for a while and uh, are interested in becoming a member, we are having a Becoming a New Member class on Saturday the 30th. Uh, That's a Saturday from 9 o'clock to noon. So uh, if you would like to know what becoming a member at Greenbelt Baptist looks like, uh, put that on your calendar. Let me start our time here by reading from Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. We've been working slowly through the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and these are seven letters to real historical churches, uh, but also Symbolically, seven, representing Jesus' letters to the universal church throughout time and history. And so each one of these letters uh, has significant uh, information for us today. And this is the last in that series. So Revelation three fourteen, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time that you've given us, time to come together as your church and to Come before your word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Father, it is able to pierce down into the depths of our hearts and to bring conviction, as we've sung, to bring brokenness. Lord, your love for us looks like that, your discipline and your reproving. And Father, we pray that you would indeed convict us of sin But Lord, we pray that you might also encourage us in faithfulness and in obedience and in a restored joy in you, our God. Father, we pray that as we 
meditate upon your word, you would feed us and nourish us in Christ by your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When we look across the landscape of American Christianity today, I wonder what you see. Do we see churches that reflect the fervor and, and the zeal of a soldier at war? An athlete running the race of his life? Spiritual sweat dripping from endeavor? Or do we see churches that look more like lazy boy chairs, out of which are countless Christians murmuring the words, Oh, I'm so comfortable. No, don't wake me up. When we look at the pulsating life of the early church, a church that literally turned the entire world upside down, do we see our reflection in them? Or do we look away in shame? Formerly, Christians seemed driven by holy passion, glad to be known by the world as different, called out as zealots, Puritans. But now little seems to motivate us at all. In fact, I'd venture to say that when we do come across a Christian who really is on fire for the glory and honor of Christ, a man whose entire life is given over to honoring Jesus, even in those mundane particulars and behind the scenes, many of us would be quick to accuse him of being a fanatic, too extreme. And it's for this reason that out of all the seven letters written to the churches in Revelation 2 and and 3, this this last letter written to the church in Laodicea is perhaps closest to our context today. And what's fascinating to see is how the Lord Jesus Christ describes that problem in terms of taste. You see that? They've left such a bad taste in his mouth that he can do nothing but spit them out of his mouth. The Laodicean church had a certain flavor to it. We know something of how that works. You go to one church and it has a more laid-back flavor, where still another church might have a reserved and more formal flavor. But the problem with Laodicea was that they had a completely awful flavor. They left a bad taste in our Lord's mouth. The language isn't used here, but you you can't help but think of how Jesus called Christians to be salt and to to not lose their saltiness. Well, it seems that that's exactly what Laodicea had done. They were a, a bland, flavorless, saltless church, and because of that, they had lost their witness. Jesus uses a metaphor that the Laodiceans would have been familiar with, this this language of of being neither hot nor cold. Uh, In their ancient context, uh, water had to be brought in from out of town. There were no hot springs in the immediate vicinity. And other cities in the Asia Minor District were able to get really hot water from the hot springs that were near to them or or to get cold water closer to the mountains. But Laodicea was in such a place that they, they had to bring it from far away. And by the time it finally got there, it was lukewarm. In that ancient time, probably contrary to what we think, uh, lukewarmness was not the water that you wanted. It, 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 it fostered disease. Now, you either wanted the extremes of cold, which was refreshing and, and invigorating, or the hot, life-giving water to have your good tea with. This problem of lukewarm water was how Jesus described their church. 
They were a tepid church. Lukewarm, their, their witness was not extreme on either hot or the cold side. And because of that, they had completely lost their witness. Now, we know it's an issue of witness precisely because of how Jesus introduces himself in the text. Do you see that there in verse 14? Jesus calls himself the, the amen, the faithful and true witness, which stood in stark contrast to the Laodiceans. Here was Jesus whose faithfulness to the Father made him go to the extreme, humbling self even unto death in order to uphold a true witness to his Father. And yet the Laodicean church, who in lukewarm fashion seems to have entirely given up their witness. What does Jesus mean when he calls himself the beginning of God's creation? Well, this entire introduction harkens back to how Jesus described himself back in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. You can turn there quickly and you can see Jesus says there again that he is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. In other words, when Jesus describes himself as the beginning of God's creation, he isn't saying that God created him first before he created everything else. That's an old Aryan heresy or what Jehovah's Witnesses might try to tell us today. Now he's saying that Jesus is the beginning of the new creation. His resurrection, his being the firstborn from the dead, was the event that inaugurated the new creation. Interestingly, the book of Colossians, which Paul sent it to Colossae, and and when he did, he commanded the Colossians to also go and read that book to the church in Laodicea. Well, Paul uses here the exact same language that he used there. It's as if Jesus is, is bringing back to their minds truths they should have already known as they studied the book of Colossians. So when we read Colossians 1, 15 through 18, a passage the church would have spent many a Lord's Day preaching through and thinking about, We see there that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This is exactly why Paul, in describing the effect of Jesus' resurrection, can say that if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The new creation has broken into our reality. It's not fully here yet. All things haven't yet been made new, but believers have. Believers are the very inbreaking, the first fruits of that new creation. And it's precisely there in the local church that that gathering together of new creation people, ambassadors and witnesses for the coming of the fullness of that kingdom, the culmination and completion of the new heavens and the new earth, It's there in the local church where we should be the brightest and boldest witness of that coming reality. So Jesus is saying to Laodicea, you've lost that. This quality of faithful witness, of reflecting the reality of the resurrection of Christ and, and being partakers yourselves of the new creation in him, the firstborn from the dead, that quality is woefully lacking. Not only that, they're in need of resurrection power, aren't they? Spiritually speaking, they're withering and dying and in dreadful need of Christ's spiritual enlivening, a revival of spiritual life which alone could lead them back to being effective witnesses in a dead and dark and pagan culture. 
I know your works, says Jesus. You're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm and and have given up your witness, no longer containing the aroma and flavor of the new creation in Christ to bear within your city, well, I will spit you out of my mouth. You've become distasteful to me, Laodicea. What was it that led Laodicea to become lukewarm? What made them to be distasteful and to lose their witness? I think we can see that there was a kind of contentment that settled in, right? Not a godly contentment, but but rather a kind of laziness, a, a satisfaction with the status quo. Do you see that there in verse 17? You say, Laodicea, that I am rich. I have prospered. And I need nothing. There was this aura of satisfaction when you walked into their church. A feeling of proud congratulation. We've made it. We're doing well. We don't need a thing. And you notice how Jesus tells them there in verse 17 that they've actually forgotten. They they don't realize their true spiritual condition. A spiritual ignorance has set in. They have no self-awareness of how spiritually dull and lukewarm they've actually become. Why is that, do you think? It takes a certain level of zeal and liveliness, I think we'd all agree, to maintain a faithful witness in a culture that really is opposed to Jesus Christ. So one of the reasons must have been that their own sense of taste became dulled by the taste they developed for the world around them. The the taste they had for the things of this world and not for the world to come. They looked and smelled and tasted more and more like the Laodicean culture around them. The city of Laodicea was known throughout the Roman world as a very rich and prosperous city. It was, by all means, one of the greatest financial centers for much of Roman and Greek trade. When a major earthquake brought the city to its knees in 60 A.D., They actually made a name for themselves as a city by rebuilding the entire city with their own finances, not needing, as other cities have always done, help from the empire. And so it was probably that that very mindset, this attitude of self-sufficiency that also crept right into the church and which Jesus himself calls them out on. The church, like the city, prided itself on its own wealth and its own self-sufficiency. So then when Paul famously in Romans 12 commanded Christians to no longer be conformed by the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of your mind, well, in Laodicea, the very opposite had happened. Instead of the church being a faithful and flavorful witness and transforming the culture around it, instead they became transformed by the culture and took on the flavor of Laodicea. The essence then of their lukewarmness was that they felt they needed nothing. They lost their witness because they lost their desire to need Jesus more. They were spiritually self-satisfied. Oh, sure, they they, they prayed before meals. They listened to their family-friendly radio station on the way to church. But all in all, they really had no deep desire to want more of and to need more of Jesus They were quite content with their safe Jesus who didn't demand too much of their lives, who safely stayed waving from the outside but never intruded into the deep parts of their hearts and lives. 
because theirs was a half-hearted religion, a Jesus light, where they were afraid of being called fundamentalists or evangelicals, afraid of being too extreme, too radical. Well, Jesus really does warn them, doesn't he? I will spit you out of my mouth. The reality, says Jesus, was that their their state was wretched. They were pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And look, the reality of that indictment, to be called wretched and and pitiable and, and, and poor by Jesus, that's a damning statement. But it's also in the in the very same breath, a blessing. It's damning because it's the truth. To be found naked before Jesus Christ is not a good look. And if Jesus looks at you and says, oh, what a wretch, that's not good either. And to be utterly blind before Jesus, blind to your own neediness, well, that's the most pitiful of all. And yet doesn't Jesus tell them this because he loves them? Look at verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. What blessing there is then in these harsh words of Jesus. Jesus loves them so much that he refuses to leave them in their own ignorance and blindness. He's reproving them and in love disciplining them and then then calling them to what? To be zealous and repent. Isn't that great? What's the opposite of their lifeless, lukewarm religion? A zeal that is passionately needy. Let's allow the text to shine in on us for a little bit. If the essence of being a lukewarm church, a lukewarm Christian, is a a kind of blind self-satisfaction, a spiritual contentedness with who we are, well, then how can you tell? What can we use as a a kind of barometer to see if we're becoming lukewarm? I think there are a couple of answers. Jesus, earlier in his ministry, told his disciples that, that after his resurrection, he would leave them and return to his father, but that they would remain and, and serve as witnesses of Jesus throughout the world. And he said this, By this all people will know that you are my disciples. This is how you will maintain a faithful witness if you have love for one another. So that in a real sense, a church that is lukewarm will begin to be a church where its members do not love each other. They're not fellowshipping together regularly, having each other over for dinner, asking the tough, loving questions of what's going on in your life and waiting for an honest answer. They're sacrificing their time and money and life to serve and help one another. But a lukewarm church will be a church where gossip and and backbiting is easily creeping in, where the members don't trust each other and show charity and and patience with one another. Now, a church that is hot with flavorful zeal is a church that loves because it knows the hot love of Christ. John Piper has often talked about another test, a second way to take your own spiritual temperature, and I think this is absolutely eye-opening for many people. The way to tell if you are among the number of spiritually self-satisfied Christians, if you are a lukewarm Christian, is to, is to look at your own prayer life. Examine yourself and see how frequently and how earnestly you're praying. How boldly and how long 
are you praying? How honestly are you praying? Bringing new and fresh requests before the throne of Christ day after day. Do you strive with God in long, rigorous prayer, seeking to know Jesus more and more and not giving up until you've been with him in that sweet communion? How often do we pray and then so easily give up because our our hearts are just not there? Failing to pray until we pray, as older Puritans used to say. Now show me the life of a Christian in prayer, and I can pretty closely show you the temperature of his soul. Because it's the spiritually self-satisfied, those who feel that they need nothing, who are most content with wimpy prayers. And friends, I say this to you this morning as a man who is himself in a long season of perfunctory, weak, and wimpy prayers. I need this text badly. I so need the counsel of Jesus here because I confess I'm a sinner, yes, in need of Jesus. My prayer life has not reflected that reality. This is why we need to ask ourselves this. As Christians, we need, we we, we usually know the right answers, right? We, we, We know what to say about needing Jesus or not. That's what leads to a kind of spiritual ignorance though, isn't it? We're content and satisfied with our safe religious answers. We, we know our catechism question and answers. But ask yourself the question, how are you praying? Is it with zeal? Is there a cold refreshing that comes about in prayer? Or is there a warm and hot comfort that results from your prayer life? Or are you just lukewarm? praying quickly before you fall asleep and a few quick requests throughout the day, but mostly satisfied and content as you drift more and more into spiritual laziness. So what do you do if that's you this morning? That's me this morning in full confession. And friend, I pray that you do not remain blind. True repentance here, if that is you, demands that at the very least you own Jesus' indictment against you. If he's going to give you the cure, you've got to at least buy into what he's saying about the problem. The sign of God's grace truly breaking in upon your heart is that when Jesus says you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, you hear that as an arrow piercing your own heart. It impacts you. You don't sit there and think, oh, those poor Laodiceans. You think, poor me. I've been blind. I'm a wretch. I really do need help. So what do we do if lukewarmness has settled into our hearts? Well, he tells us in verse 19. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see, be zealous, and repent. And the counsel here is simple. Find for me true, unfading wealth, eternal wealth. Find for me purity and clothing to cover your shame. Find for me healing for your blindness. The emphasis, says Jesus, is me. I counsel you to find more of me. And yet we need to ask the question, right? Doesn't it strike you as odd as you've read through this that Jesus counsels them here to buy from him gold? 
I mean, how do you buy gold when you're poor, blind, and naked? Jesus knows we're broke, right? He's just said so in verse 17. And we're not just broke, but we're, we're blind. We can't even get out to work. So how do you buy gold when you're broke, blind, and bare naked? Are you ready for the answer? Behold, I'm standing at the door and knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You can't do anything. You can't go anywhere. But Jesus can. And he does. And he, and he comes to you and he offers fellowship with you. And he, he only asks that you open the door and let him in and enjoy him. Open all the doors of your life and let him in. Praying with him. Communing with him. Living with him. One of the sad realities of our modern context is that sometime, as far as I can see, around the late 1800s, uh, revivalistic preachers of a more Arminian bent began using this text as a kind of evangelistic call to non-believers, saying that Jesus was knocking on the door of your heart and, and all you had to do to be a Christian was to let him in. And this ended up doing a lot of damage to the way people saw the gospel because they stopped thinking about the gospel in terms of a command Repent and believe. They started thinking about it more in terms of an offer, an invitation. But by and large, the New Testament witness shows us that Jesus Christ, well, he isn't this this helpless lower G God waiting for us to let him in before we can start a relationship. Now, through and through, we see Jesus going after people and bringing them to believe in him. He knocked Saul off the horse, blinding his physical eyes, but opening up his spiritual eyes and irresistibly bringing him to follow as a disciple. In Acts 17, we see that it was God who brought Lydia to believe by, quote, opening up her heart to hear the gospel and believe. Now, Jesus is not this lonely and weak recluse asking people to, oh, maybe open up their doors and let me in. He is the sovereign God who changes hearts, and according to his will, brings men and women into relationship with himself. That's amazing grace. If you're here this morning as an unbeliever, this is the God who is calling to you now. Come to him in repentance. Turn away from trusting in yourself and begin to put your only trust and satisfaction in him. Jesus isn't hoping that you might. He's commanding you, follow me. So how are we to think then about this passage here, which tells us that Jesus really does stand at the door and knock? Well, for starters, we need to remember that he's speaking to people who are already Christian believers. He's not talking about salvation in this passage. He's talking about restoring them to the kind of relationship that they had when they first believed. Not the dulled and flavorless relationship of a lukewarm marriage but one that is refreshingly cold and passionately hot. Do you remember? Open up. Scott read and and prayed for us earlier this morning from Song of Solomon chapter 5. It's there where I think Jesus is getting this language from. 
And the context of that passage in Song of Solomon was, was the husband knocking on the door to their bedroom, a locked bedroom door, because they just had their first marital tiff. There was a lukewarmness beginning to settle between them, evidenced by the fact that she, the wife, hesitated to even open the door right away. But he knocks nonetheless to encourage his wife to continue to express her love to him and to let him enter. I'm not content with this lukewarmness. Neither should you be. And so Christ, our husband, is doing the same thing here with his bride, the church. He knocks on the door of a church which has grown cold in their love for Christ. They've become satisfied and content, and they've lost that joy and passion that was there at the beginning. Sure, the honeymoon doesn't last forever, but but they're not even eating dinner at the same table anymore. Behold, I'm here. I'm knocking. Let me in, and let me be your husband, and remind you of what being in love is all about. You've grown lukewarm, and because of that, you've grown blind. You're becoming spiritually bankrupt. So how much does it cost, again, to to buy gold from Jesus? Answer? More than we could ever pay ourselves. But Jesus has paid that impossibly high price himself, hasn't he? He paid it all. All to him we owe. And once we've seen that Jesus has given his all for us, we cannot but help give our all to him. Because it cost him so much, we see now that our discipleship, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer reminds us, is not cheap. That it now costs us everything to follow after him. Because it's Jesus, oh, it's worth every bit of it and more. Friends, Jesus did not die for us to enjoy a comfortable and risk-free life while he stays safely out of the way, encouraging us now and then with a friendly thumbs up. And neither did Jesus die for us to give him our stuff. Writing him easy checks every couple of weeks. Jesus doesn't want our stuff. How much of a sacrifice do you think it really was for the wealthy Laodiceans to spend out of their own impressive bank accounts, cashing in a few stocks here and a few bonds there to rebuild their city? That was the sacrifice of the self-satisfied, lazy, and lukewarm. Now, Jesus doesn't want their wealth. He wants them. He wants their hearts their desires and longings and needs to be met and satisfied in him. He wants us to take risks as we seek to make him known, our great husband and redeemer throughout the city. He wants to be our husband and for us to follow him at any cost. Because it's there, isn't it, where we truly begin to live lives as faithful witnesses? When people see in us, no matter what's going on or how tough it gets, that Jesus really is our deepest satisfaction and that we will still follow him because we still desperately need him. I did not come to Jesus because he'd give me a wealthier and healthier life. I came to Jesus for Jesus. And when life is tough, I'll keep going to Jesus because I need Jesus. Oh, that our entire lives would be flavored with that kind of deed. So Jesus encourages us here as we come to a close in verse 21 to conquer, to conquer that menacing disease of lukewarmness. He calls us to overcome and conquer our proclivity to just drift, drifting into a tasteless, 
lukewarm and self-satisfied existence? Every time we, we gather, every time there's two or more of us gathered together here, there he is with us, isn't he? What taste is left in Jesus' mouth after he's been with us? What's the aftertaste of your day as you lay down each night and think back over your day? And perhaps you realize you've barely had time with Jesus. And so you offer up that quick prayer before nodding off just to do it all over again the next day. What flavor are we bringing to the table fellowship of our Lord? Earlier this week, we held our talk here on Christianity and food, thinking through a theology of eating and drinking. It was a good time. October 5th, you're more than welcome to join us for Christianity and smartphones. But during the Q&A time, there arose a discussion on fasting. What is it? And why don't we do it too often in our modern American context? As I've meditated upon this text for my own life this week, convicted and yet also encouraged as I, as I hear Jesus knocking for me, I can't help but open that door. And that means giving myself to communing with him, seeking him, and, and, and being in his presence in serious and, and concerted prayer. And Jesus promises, right, that when we open, he will come in and eat with us. And yet... I'm afraid that I'm losing my appetite for Jesus through the constant eating and gorging I've done without Jesus. I've fed a lot on the world. There's a spiritual sleepiness that's beginning to set in because I've eaten too much of the world and not enough with Jesus Christ. And so it's here, I think, where fasting becomes key saying no to the good things of this world, and in that fast, creating a real hunger, but in that hunger, asking the Lord to give me still a deeper hunger for Christ, a neediness to commune and eat with him. And in God's faithfulness, Christ, who is our bread from heaven, will satisfy. This week, I will give myself to seeking after the Lord in prayer. And I'll do so through times of fast. And I want to, in a uh, unique way, which has never been done from the pulpit before, invite you to join me. Uh, Fast. Give up food. And in hunger, ask the Lord to create within you a deeper hunger for our Savior.